Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 15th, 2023. Long time viewers and listeners to the show that know that I have a particular interest in regenerative economics, the idea of the circular economy, environmentalism, and all new ways of thinking about the environment. In fact, yesterday we did an interesting show um, with a farmer, very unusual farmer, Will Harris, on why cheap food isn't really cheap and why the future of food should be local and regenerative. Uh, and we are back to talking about regeneration today with my guest, Trond Andheim. He's been on the show before. Uh, he's a prolific writer, thinker, futurist. And he has a new book out, Ecotech, Investing in Regenerative Futures. He's joining us today. Where are you, Trond? You... Seem to be I'm in Wellesley, Massachusetts, but as I yeah. told you, I, I oscillate between the east and the west coast of the U.S., um, but last week I was actually in Europe, so um, traveling a bit. You're an oscillator, Trond, and you're a yeah. futurist, a relentless futurist. What is it about a regenerative future that um, has inspired you to write this new book, Ecotech? Regenerative and regenerative economics, the idea of regeneration is suddenly becoming extremely hot and fashionable. What is it that uh, drives you and what do you understand by the idea of a regenerative future? Well, first of all, what drives me towards it is that we absolutely need it, right? Um, the challenge, and I think my entire really book is about this challenge, is that I don't think we fully, uh, we haven't fully captured the possibility of what we're, we haven't decided actually what this regenerative future is going to be. And I think a lot of the concepts related to sustainability and, uh, you know, and, and the way industry is uh, bringing us there or not bringing us there, they have been far, far too extreme either direction. So my book is about trying to cut a middle ground uh, because the absolute worst scenario is that there are so extreme versions available that you know we will again oscillate in you know between making progress towards something and then losing all of that ground because uh, you know this is so contentious politically so i hope that's... you're not watering it down though i mean sometimes marketers get i'm not suggesting you are a marketer but marketers often get hold of these um environmental themes and, and and water them down so dramatically that in the end they're meaningless that is correct and that's true and i think that has happened both to sustainability uh, and it's probably about to happen both to the term regeneration and certainly to the term uh, degrowth but you know that doesn't mean that we we cannot discuss them and you know we do need to make more explicit what we truly mean the challenge with you know degrowth for example which will get will get us potentially to a regenerative society where we're actually net contributing to biodiversity and to nature as opposed to kind of only extracting it which the current industrial paradigm does is that you know if you posit that this is something people are going to have to accept that you know we don't have active growth for perhaps decades and decades and maybe centuries I don't think that's going to fly. A lot of people don't think that's going to fly. 
And it doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, flow from the notion of regeneration that that's the case. And it certainly doesn't have to flow from the notion of degrowth that there is no growth. So I think right now we are at this early conceptualization of these terms and these realities. But what's really important is to, I guess, just sit down and figure out where are we on this trajectory? Because there are all of these massive projects to try to get us somewhere. And we are investing, for example, using our industrial paradigms to try to get us out of, you know, our, our carbon nightmare. So, you know, carbon capture, other things. But I, my book was this contribution to try to say, we are not there yet with a lot of these technologies. And it is overly optimistic, this eco-modernist idea that we can innovate ourselves out of everything. I don't think right now reality is not uh, panning that out. Um, that doesn't mean we can give up, um, but it certainly also does not mean that you know we run full steam forward with all kinds of strange innovations that very, very unlikely will take us in a, in a, in a good direction. So we are in a perplexing time, I think, in the next 25, 30 years. We're, we're going to have to decide whether to invest in fairly substandard technologies and practices that might get us towards something better than what we have now. But on that path, unfortunately, it is still enormously extractive. So we might solve some issues, but if we are stuck in the overall extractive logic, digging stuff out from the earth, you know, rare metals, all of that stuff, Ultimately, we're not solving anything. So the conundrum then becomes, uh, Andrew, you know, should we stop and rethink the direction of all these innovations? Or should we just not make any massive choices, but keep innovating in all directions and then re really just hope that the eco-modernists are right, that eventually we will come up with enough breakthroughs all across the board so that most problems will be fixed. That's really uh, what the book is trying to discuss here. And it, it, it enters into all of these existing and emerging technologies that people are trying to Yeah, it sounds uh, use like you're, you're, you're asking more questions than providing answers. I feel when I'm listening to you, I feel like I'm one of those airplanes that's circling outside an airport waiting to land. You've, you've, you've gone round and round, uh, 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 um, Tron, but you're not really telling me anything. You've talked about sustainability and degrowth. Give me some more concrete ideas of, of where we should, not where we shouldn't, but where we should invest in what you call a regenerative future. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that's very obvious is we should invest in biodiversity because if you don't invest in biodiversity, we continue what we're doing. And less biodiversity, you know, is kind of a fact and it is a very, uh, you know, it's an escalatory process. So that, that there's a lot of stuff that actually makes a lot of sense to, to, uh, to do right now. So boost biodiversity or at least stop the drastic decline that we have seen. But doesn't that go without saying? No one's in favor of. No, I no, I agree with you. But what, what I'm saying is, there are, there's like probably eight to ten kind of things that everyone in principle agrees. The problem is we're not doing it. Is you, you see what I'm saying? So so the the challenge then becomes, let's double down on a few things that, whether you know we have the optimal approaches or not, we are at least doing something, but not at a speed that would, uh, potentially risk that someone says, 
this is not worth it. It's, it's costing us too much, it, it, you know, and it is destroying global economies. That would be bad, and that would just basically be counterproductive to to the idea. Now, I'm not one of those uh, apologetics who say, you know, we should keep fossil fuels going, for example. So that's for me a, a no-brainer. You ha we have to stop fossil fuel extraction relatively immediately. So I mean, there there are very I, I, and I mentioned very specific things. Uh, you know, minimizing ca carbon footprint, all of these things that a lot of people agree with, but we're actually not doing. But do you believe you've, you've used this subtitle of the book, investing in regenerative futures? What does that mean? What is a regenerative future? You have to define what you mean by this term. Well, I'm defining it in the negative, which is it is probably not what most people mean by the term. And I don't think I have not. I don't have a fully good definition of it, but I think that the word has been captured by a lot of people who are very, very sure of themselves, uh, you know, of having tr found what it actually is. I don't think it's possible to know what it is yet. So we have to sustain it as a ideal, keep refining it, but none of the technologies or approaches uh, that we have right now will, will conceivably get us towards a situation where we are, like I said at the outset, actually giving back to nature and enhancing. So why are you using the potential. term if you don't want to use it? Why are you putting the term in the subtitle, regenerative futures, if you said it's not possible? Because it is the best we've got, right? So it is the best term out of all of them, right? Sustainability, all, all of these other ideas for where we should take society. It's at least a vision for something different. Sustainability. Okay, so, so give me that said, vision. You know, okay, you, you, you're circling again, Tron. I need some more. Car. We need to get to the ground. We're getting impatient here. Tell me what you mean by it. A regenerative future is a future that over time gives human beings and our biological uh, surroundings a increased chance of flourishing economically, socially, uh, you know, and in uh, you know, in most ways, including economically. So, it is basically just a specific way to say sustainability is a passive notion that only says let's kind of sustain what we have. Regeneration is a more active notion that says we can do much better. And when we do better, all aspects of uh, our natural and physical and social world can do much, much better in the future. So it is, it's an, still a very, very abstract notion, but it is much better than saying, let's sustain something at some level, which perhaps is like, who knows, 1850 or something, the way nature was. My point, though, is actually really specific. We will, we have lost a lot, and we will lose a lot, and we have to be prepared psychologically to lose a lot more. So the reason we still need to talk about it without having a, a very clear idea about what it actually is or could be is that if we don't, we will either literally not have any chance of regenerating anything close uh, to, to what we, you know, our forefathers uh, experienced, or um, we will basically destroy our economy 
trying to create something that we actually haven't decided. You're going to crash uh, the plane, in other words. You, you mentioned degrowth. What do you think of the work of people like Jason Hickel and Tim Jackson, who basically argue that, I don't know if they use the term regenerative futures, but we know what they their vision of the future is, that it's not possible within a, a capitalist econo economy. Yeah, exactly. They they think it's not possible in a capitalist economy. They, they, you? I, I think it is, yes. I Why? think we have to keep our capitalist economy because without a capitalist economy, we're not going to propel innovation forward. So that's that's the that's the basic tenet. We have to propel innovation forward, and we just have to gamble essentially that innovation is part of the answer. In the uh, interim, however, we have to do the best we can, and we can't just sit there and be fully kind of eco-modernists and say we cannot, we shouldn't care about setting goals that are moderately better for nature and, and for social groups that are being disadvantaged right now by, you know, environmental uh, kind of, uh, you know, by industrialism, by the industrialist paradigm. We have a very careful captain of our plane today, Tron Unheim, who is the author of an interesting new book, Ecotech, Investing in Regenerative Futures. Um, Tron, I think one of the reasons why you're careful is because you're all too familiar with risk. Um, you, uh, you've been involved with the Stanford study on cas cascading risk. Tell me about that and what you most fear about the future, both what you personally and what the Stanford study suggests is the biggest risks of the future. You're right. So we looked at uh, 2075. We're looking 50 years into the future. And the biggest... Which you call the, the, the end of the world. Very ominous. Yeah, end the end of the, of the world. world. 2075. You and I will probably won't get there, but our kids will, right? So I, I'm not speaking for you. I won't get there. Maybe you will. I'm hoping to get there. I think what we were looking at is essentially, are there ways that the world could be brought to a state where we are heading for such a decline that the world would conceivably end, uh, you know, within 50 years, that it at least would show the signs that unless something enormously drastic happens, uh, then we are cascading in a negative way towards extinction, uh, or at least uh, negating the uh, very, very uh, real possibilities of, of having something close that resembles how we are living today. And we found a, a bunch of different ways, individual ways that are familiar to many right now. Uh, AI risk is the one that everyone's talking about. But, uh, you know, in reality, a, a full economic cataclysm it could also independently uh, bring us there. And one of our scenarios is synthetic biology and, you know, you, you know, some sort of lab leak. These are very familiar scenarios. But the point is, when we looked at all these scenarios, the most scary of all scenarios is the monster scenario that several things happen in a very short sequence of time. So they're proximate in time and place. And the problem is very few governments or any other actor have prepared for these cascading phenomena. We haven't even really modeled them because science has brought us so focused on individual risk areas. Some people care about geopolitics. That would be natural this week. Others care about specific technologies and they're really scared about what AI might be doing uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now. 
what we think uh, with this study cascading risks uh, is that you cannot afford to look at only one, even five different scenarios and risks. They will all be working together. And if we are facing cataclysmic risk, those risks would be a hybrid of risks that are escalating and co-occurring and enhancing the effect of each other. And this has a number of consequences for the way we need to mitigate those risks. We, for example, cannot obsess over AI risk to the detriment of other types of risks. You mentioned, uh, Tron, this week, geopolitics as we speak on October the 15th, 2023. A lot of people fearing another Middle Eastern war. Um, what is the role of geopolitics here? What do you make of what's happening in Gaza and Israel right now? Is this part of our threateningly existential future, or is this just another chapter in an ongoing dispute that will never end? Well, let me be more specific on this one than on the other question, since you were saying, you know, I'm uh, uh, being guarded here. I think geopolitics is very difficult right now because my view is that the nation state is nearing its end, which is not a very original view. But the challenge with that for me isn't whether it ends or not, but it is that we have these very advanced nations, which gets us to the cascading uh, point that have developed all of these technologies that when they are in safe hands could be said they have innovative potential they can get us if we just give them time they will mature and they will do many good things for a broad specter of the population if countries like Israel like Russia like the US like the UK countries that we have seen as very stable for 50, 100 years, if they are teetering on the brink of either breakup or some massive shifts in how uh, they see themselves, their mission, and also perhaps uh, the way that they are aligning with other actors, uh, na nation states or otherwise, this is extremely difficult to handle. In other words, when the nation state as a unit does not um, persist as a trusted entity. That's when we would be in cascading risk. You, you've mentioned the end of the nation state. I've heard that. You said it's not original. Maybe it isn't, but um, not everyone talks about it. Uh, Keith Tier, who I do a show with, it also believes we're at the end of the nation state. What, what comes after it to fit in with a regenerative future? In other words, how could a, how could geopolitics and politics and political organization work in a regenerative future? What does regenerative politics look like, Tron? Well, for a long time, we, and by that I also include myself, had thought that global politics was the answer to this, or at least a increasingly internationalized uh, legal and political structure. I now firmly believe that that is not the answer. So, you know, instead of being uh, fearful that, you, you know, this global project is not advancing fast enough, I am now actually extremely happy that it is not advancing uh, very fast. And I think that some sort of regional entity uh, above the nation state is actually the best way forward, both for regeneration and for calming down uh, geopolitical tension. So this has, uh, uh, there's a number of reasons why I think so. 
But if you just want to isolate on one thing, think about broadly sort of emerging technologies that are networked. We cannot afford as a world to risk, you know, imagine a network that goes rogue, that is global. That would be abominable. That would you know, bring us into 1984 territory. It is really a, a very scary thought. Or imagine a, a mistake in some of these very fundamental platforms. I think we very seriously need to start thinking about how- Why would it bring we... us into 1984 territory? What do you mean by that? No, I'm just saying, you know, any kind of massively global and uh, sort of compressing set of systems that only has one center is enormously risky. And anybody who has studied, you know, cybersecurity, anything else, you know, whatever is one entity with only kind of one entrance to to the, the the big secret sauce is extremely risky, right? So you are then relying on one institutional entity controlling um, the globe, essentially. And if a mistake happens, that mistake then will uh, percolate all across the world very, very soon. And we have seen these with uh, this with less important Okay, so uh, issues you're, like you're, social you're, media and other things. So right, what I'm so saying is there has to be a level that is uh, above the nation state, but is not a global level. Yeah, and the one that comes to mind, of course, is the EU. When I'm listening to you, you sound ex- very much of a technocrat. There's not a lot of passion there, not a lot of color, love and hate. Aren't these things which are essential to the human condition after the nation uh, and don't we need to include that in politics? Are you someone who seems rather dismissive of politics and even the very condition of, of, of being human? Um, no, I would disagree with that. I think that what I see emerging here is not something that a technocrat could plan. In fact, it has it can only emerge if people want it to emerge. So what I'm simply saying is, I think this idea that something spontaneously would emerge that is global and everybody agrees about is a little far-fetched. And I'm what glad about the, the EU then. So do you have a model of a, a post-nation state political organization that we can use? Well, I think the EU I happen to think the EU is not a bad idea, right? But I think if you look at what Africa is going to do 50 years from now when you know they become the most populous continent uh, it's not going to be the eu it, it'll be it'll look different and it certainly will look different than the current african union but i and, and it's not obvious to me that this has to follow one-to-one with what we consider continents today so you know a north america and a perhaps south america and an africa and a, and a europe and, and and some sort of couple of asian uh, uh you know uh economic or, or social unions they could look radically different. In fact, they don't necessarily need to be proximate geographically. It it would help. My point is the vision to create those things um, would have to be there. And I think it it can include all of those uh, warm and wonderful things that you speak about, which are part of the human psyche. I do think we have it in us. I think, in fact, the biggest good force so that could create positive cascades is uh, social movements. So I think there are many, many examples of social movements that could be the embryonic start of something 
uh, like I'm like what I'm talking about. Well, could you give me a couple of examples or one concrete example of a social movement that might offer a signpost to a political, a, a regenerative political future? Oh, I think I think many of the existing environmental organizations uh, have the embryo of, uh, of of such structures. I think actually, uh, you know, the the regenerative farming communities, um, mm. they, they are distributed. So, you know, this ch the challenge there is to get to the kind of scale that I'm talking about. We have to or those movements have to solve that scaling challenge, whether it's even interesting for them to kind of organize in a much larger uh, scale. But I think some combination of the people that believe in distributed action and believe in, you know, working the local territory where they are, but then coming together as a group and agreeing on some common notions, perhaps it's actually possible to run a governance entity without very much central coordination. So I think we also need to look at different governance paradigms that don't look like I mean, I think the EU is one version. I think there are many ways that people have organized themselves throughout millennia that are much less structured that, than the EU. Yeah, I wish I could share your optimism. It seems to me as if the one set of institutions that are effectively investing in a regenerative future are authoritarian governments like China. Is it conceivable that a regenerative future might be built by centralized authoritarian governments like the Chinese one? You know, I actually think that's possible. I think that we, for too long, as intellectuals or politicians in Western democracies, have thought we have the only answer that can be a futuristically solid answer for humanity. I have now come to think that there are many, many answers. And democracy, for example, is also a notion that I think we have rested too much, we have had too much faith in. I think we need radically different notions of how to organize, how to self-organize, and how to represent each other in governance bodies. They, they, democracy will look very different, I think, 50 years from now. And it may not look the same all around the globe, just like it has really never looked the same. But we have refused to accept it. And we have proceeded as if there is one right answer to this question. And well, are you suggesting that democracy control. is a kind of Western conceit and that maybe we can get beyond it in our regenerative future? I think that's very likely that we will get beyond democracy as most people conceive of it. Uh, and certainly as a governance structure that we have, uh, you know, seen in, in, in many of the Western countries that we uphold as uh, these ideals. You mentioned AI earlier, Trond. Uh, we've done many shows, as you can imagine. I know you've done a great deal of thinking on it. Um, how do you get regenerative AI? Or is AI, by definition, in an odd sense, regenerative in the sense that it's building on human intelligence to create more intelligence. I think you're you're hitting the uh, the nail on the head there. I think if we are careful now, AI will be an augmented technology that augments humans. So the problem is if you believe in humans, the the humans that you know are running the uh, digital technologies that are now morphing and using AI, then this is a good thing because we will be augmenting good things, including democracy, by the way, that I, we were just speaking about. 
Um, so I'm actually not that pessimistic when it comes to our ability as societies to control and shape AI into so something positive. But, but we cannot rest on our laurels thinking this is all going to go well because we have created it so we can control it. We need to actively take charge and, and make sure that we uh, think much more about where things are going. That's where the relationship for me is between innovation and risk. So we have for very long just assumed that all innovation is good. And we have not considered to put on the innovator to say, well, what if your platform becomes absolute? Can you control it? Can we control it? Can we stop it? Uh, or can we shape it? That now has to be put on all innovators everywhere. And that's a government, a governance challenge within the large corporations, tech corporations developing these technologies and on governments. But you cannot trust, you know, the G7 to have all the answers on that. You, we, we actually need to put the control a little bit back uh, and the responsibility back on the corporations and, and I think on social uh, communities of, of user communities that use these technologies. Why did we let social media go so far as it has over the last few decades? It's a pretty simplistic uh, thing. We could have stalled it. Parents should have risen up long ago and just said this, we're not standing for this. Um, and with other technologies that are going to be even more consequential, we need to see our responsibility as each individual and small collectives. We have to take those things very seriously because we cannot trust that there is a nice, wonderful entity, democratically governed, with global remit. Uh, Final question. And um, last time you were on the show, you talked about how augmented technology can revolutionize the 21st century factory. Isn't the ultimate risk for us as humans this augmented future? You talked about biotech, throwing, throwing our chips in with smart machines so that we merge ourselves with machines. Isn't that the riskiest of all scenarios? It's a kind of regenerative future, but a, a very dystopian one. You're right. I mean, when, when we asked uh, in, in this Stanford study, when we asked experts, uh, presumed experts, on what the risks they saw uh, were, were the kind of the biggest risks, they did say, indeed, the combination of synthetic biology and AI. And you could add, perhaps, with a form factor of a human being or, or, or some sort of uh, actual form factor as opposed to just, you know, digital ma matter. So I think that is a, a, a very potentially scary um, evolution. But on the other hand, if we manage this correctly, it might just be what saves us. I don't think it's possible at this point in 2023 to very confidently say um, that is something we need to stop at all cost. That is certainly not what I would advocate as a direction for regulation. We have to set some new kind of principle for where robotics should go, the responsibilities, but also the kinds of machines we should develop. But those have to be contingent rules and they need to change. And perhaps, you know, one rule works one year, the next year new possibilities becomes available and we have to say, oh, we were wrong. Now we need to shut down all those things. The challenge for us is agility and having governance systems that basically can continuously evolve and evolve really fast. Because as uh, technology is well fast, governance needs to uh, That seems to be, uh, Tron, the final, final. Uh, 
the most human of things, fear, agility, caution. Prove to me you're not a, a robot. What is it about Trondheim that makes him human? I think that when you criticize me, I'm defensive. Try to criticize a machine. I don't think they will be that defensive. Good answer. You've convinced me, Trond. You are human. I might be. <laughs>